don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast, where we talk about all the things we don't talk about enough, starting with death, but not ending there. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. Today, we have a really important guest and important topic. Uh, just full warning up ahead of time, we're going to be talking about torture and specifically um, the torture that was done by the U.S. government in the war on terror. And we have as our guest, Joseph Margulis. He is a professor of law and government at Cornell University. He was counsel in a record in Razul versus Bush involving detentions at Watanabe Bay Naval Station and a few other high profile cases involving the rights of prisoners. He has two books, Guantanamo and the Abuse of Presidential Power, as well as What Changed When Everything Changed, 9-11 and the Making of National Identity. So in this conversation, you know, we do talk about torture. Some of the techniques are, you know, they're horrifying. But really, this is a conversation about values, about our values, about what happens when there is a crisis. And as far as that, I think it's a really inspiring and important discussion about um, what we hold most dear, what we cherish, and about the dignity of every human person and how we hold that line. That is the real heart of the conversation for me. But uh, enough about the conversation before you hear it. Without further ado, here is Joseph Margulis. Thank you so much, Joseph Margulis, for joining us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're going to get to a lot of your work, um, you know, representing and basically contending with sort of American torture as a thing that happened in the last couple decades. But before we go there, I thought I would just ask you uh, if you remember where you were on 9-11. Oh, wow. I certainly do. I'm sure I will never forget. I was in I was living in Minneapolis at the time. Uh, it was a Tuesday morning. And I was driving to work, I think, and, and when I heard the first news, the, the, when I say the first news, the news of the first tower. And if you recall, at that point, people didn't know what had happened. Well, they knew something. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know what it represented. And so at first, people just thought it was a, just a terrible tragedy. It didn't realize that it was an act of terror. And then uh, by this time, I was in my office, and, I, and, then, the, and then when the second tower was hit, and of course, everybody was transfixed and watching it on TV. And then we heard the news about the Pentagon and, and, and then the uh, flight in rural Pennsylvania. Um, and I don't know if you recall, immediately there was this sense, the rumors started to fly. And there was this sense that um, there might be other flights that were unaccounted for. Uh, all planes were immediately grounded. Uh, it, it was a great sense of bewilderment, desperation. My wife at, the, um, at that time was overseas and flights were grounded. They couldn't get back in, so she was stranded. Uh, there was a, I felt a great need, intensely felt need to know where my friends and family were. Even though I knew intellectually that they were safe, you know, with a lot of friends, living in Manhattan, living in lower Manhattan, living in Brooklyn. Uh, you, you wanted to just know that everybody was safe and accounted for. Phones, you couldn't get through in New York City. You couldn't, you could make calls and, and phone lines were jammed because everybody was trying to call. It was a, and then of course I remember the, the aftermath. It was a really fraught time. And it shocks me that as we have removed from it, um, my students now at Cornell, no longer have a firsthand memory of it. The, the younger students, they only know what they learned about it afterwards, which is extraordinary to me since it's still so, since I've lived with it so closely and it was seared in my memory the way it is, it is for everyone of a certain age, uh, I'm sure I'll never forget it. Yeah, I'm, I have to agree. I was here in New York um, and it's, it's wild to think we'll have people voting in 2020 who weren't alive. Um, exactly. And um, were you already in the line of work you are now of, you know, defending the rights of prisoners? Yes. I mean, that's been my work 
really since even before I went before I became a lawyer. I've been a but in my entire career as a civil rights lawyer and a criminal defense lawyer has been on behalf of people who are caught up in the excesses of the criminal justice system or who have had uh, terrible things happen to them under the heel of the criminal justice system. That's been virtually my entire career. The 9-11 precipitated a, a move into a, a different area, but it's really the same phenomenon. I mean, it, I mean you know, it was, it, this is connected with national security, at least ostensibly. And before I was doing more, quote, conventional criminal defense work, in particular, representing folks on death row in the South. That was the bulk of my practice. You know, after, I mean, obviously, 9-11, we all shared in that, you know, terrible day and the trauma from that. Uh, but in your particular focus and, and line of work, when did you first become aware that, you know, that trauma was sort of leading the country into a kind of moral crisis? Well, um, so... You know, the really interesting thing about post 9-11 as, and I've studied it really closely and I've written about it and I participated in it. And the really interesting thing is that it didn't follow the pattern that we're all trained to believe will happen. Um, the, in, in, in fact, that um, conventional narrative was held up as a warning sign. Immediately, there was... I mean, and I mean immediately, but long before the White House even declared that it was a war, people were talking about it as a war, uh, that it was an act of war. This is what had happened. It was not simply a crime. Was it a crime? Yes, of course, but it was more than that. And that sentiment was instantaneous. I mean, within minutes, politicians, pundits, and so on, even before President Bush made his announcement. Um, and I, I mean the first day. But at the, almost at the same time, like almost as, as, as quick thereafter as an echo, there was a sense that we mustn't overreact. We mustn't fall into the trap uh, that has so often um, accompanied cries of uh, national security and crisis, uh, which is to find scapegoats and, and lash out uh, and abridge the civil and human rights of, of targeted groups. And immediately people started to resurrect the experience of um, the, the Japanese who were interned during the Second World War and other uh, excesses during um, wartime. And they were, and that was held up as an example of what we ought not do. And that the, the war on terror was conceived of as a war for our values and therefore it was important to adhere to those values. So this counter narrative was very strong. You have to remember, even after 9-11, President Bush made a very committed public effort to go to mosques, to say that Islam is not the enemy, to say that Muslims are not the enemy. Uh, he was much more attuned to that than President Obama was ever allowed to be, because by that time, by the time Obama came into office, there was a much more vicious, vitriolic, Islamophobic uh, narrative. So it didn't happen immediately after the crisis that we have, of which President Trump is now such, you know, the apotheosis, uh, developed and was built later uh, as a, as a, not as an immediate emotional unthinking reaction to 9-11, but as, and this is what makes it worse, a much more deliberate, uh, thought out, planned, um, xenophobic, Islamophobic uh, attack. And when did you first become aware of um, torture techniques being used on some of these, um, what, what, what's the word we should call, call um, people picked up at Guantanamo? Enemy combatants, I believe is the word I hear in the news, but what, what, what do you call them? I call them prisoners. People held in a prison are prisoners. Okay. Um, we, we first learned that they were going to hold people at Guantanamo in December of 2001. And the first prisoners arrived there in January of 2002. Uh, and we filed the first lawsuit on behalf of prisoners challenging their detention 
the claim was that they had no rights whatever completely beyond judicial process no they could not go to any forum to protest that the United States had simply made a mistake we filed that in February of 2002 at that time there were suspicions about mistreatment the United States had said the Geneva Conventions don't apply that they were not bound by any restrictions at all they could hold them as long as they want under any conditions they want and there were some pictures that had leaked out about how they were treated when they first got to Guantanamo because reporters were allowed to be there but we really didn't know a lot of details that those details didn't emerge for a couple years and what was the first time you specifically knew of a case where torture was involved trying to think the you know what landed like a bombshell and I we there were certainly leaked accounts of guys who were in CIA custody at various places who were tortured we didn't know how widespread that was the suspicion was that that was a separate program later confirmed that that was a separate program but the real bombshell were that was the disclosure about Abu Ghraib the torture at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq which the first pictures and Cy Hirsch's article about it came out in April of 2004 right that was the real there was just no doubt and then people were piecing together the connection between torture at Abu Ghraib and torture in the war on terror Afghan theater how one set of policies migrated and were perverted when they went to another another place and that the similarities and connections so people started connecting the dots in 2004 so for our listeners if you could just describe for us what what was happening at Abu Ghraib from someone Abu Ghraib prison was off the rails it was they dismantled the usual protections that are in place to prevent the abuse of prisoners a separation between the intelligence staff and the security staff they dismantled that and they made the intelligence gathering staff in charge of security conditions that is the conditions under which people are held there was terrible supervision there was a great deal of pressure to just get information insufficient scrutiny of both what information they were getting you know so so quantity substituted for quality they didn't the people there had no idea what they were doing and so they as will always happen if you have that toxic combination they descended into sadistic brutality and in April 2004 when the pictures were leaking we just every day day after day on the front page of the newspapers of the of the country and the whole world were these photos of naked Iraqis hooded stacked up like cords of wood or held in embarrassing positions or subjected to attacks by dogs threatening by dogs taking a picture of a smiling officer looking as though they were enjoying it it was grotesque it was grotesque and then of course the narrative accounts of it as well it was just that to the first memory of those pictures is as seared into my is seared into my mind as the memory of what happened in 9-11 I will never forget the first sight of the stack of naked prisoners being humiliated in a US run prison it's just repulsive obviously you really took that on as you know your your life work after that so what did you really what about seeing those pictures really created that revulsion or made you was so strong in your in your heart and your mind you know I'm trained as a lawyer and I've been a lawyer for a long time now 
um, for over three decades. And over time, I have gradually come to the conclusion that the law is an extremely limited and frankly impotent tool to protect humanity. It is, a, it is an extremely weak weapon. And, 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 what we, and, and, the, and the thing that we do wrong in putting our faith in the law is that we allow it to take the place of our moral judgment. And because there is some sense that words like right and wrong and it's immoral are subjective, we replace it with things like, well, it's illegal, as though that would provide some objectivity and, and elevate it in a way that would make it more in a, uh, uh, unassailable. It doesn't work. But one thing I've learned is that the reflexive recourse to the law, if that's the only voice you speak in, when you look for a moral voice, you find that you have lost that language, you've lost that vocabulary. And, and the best evidence of that is this arid, vacuous debate about whether what happened to uh, folks in CIA custody constitutes, quote, torture or merely a, quote, enhanced interrogation technique. So and people actually have that debate. OK, well, I'm not going to get into that debate. Here's my here's my definition. If you would recoil in horror at the sight of it done to a dog, well, then it's wrong. And I'm prepared to call it torture. And you would if you if you read that this was done to an animal, you'd say that's revolting. Someone call a prosecutor. Uh, well, that's enough for me. So what I have learned over the years is to trust my moral judgment, refine my moral judgment and to accept the universality of dignity, that everyone must be treated with dignity and respect. Everyone, no exceptions, and it doesn't matter what you allegedly have done. And, and so the sight of and the fact of what was being done, not just in places like Abu Ghraib, which is a little bit different because it was in the Iraqi theater, but in the war on terror, it was the universality of the assault on dignity and the prospect of utter dehumanization that has driven my work. Wow. Thank you for going that there with me. And we're going to return to the question of values in a, in a little bit, because you have some really interesting ideas about it. Um, however, first, you know, you make an argument, I think it was in um, a New York Review of Books article that, um, you know, one of the arguments people make is people getting caught up in these CIA, you know, black sites or Abu Ghraib, they were, they were bad guys. And yes, they were tortured or enhancedly interrogated, but, you know, these are the bad guys, so it doesn't matter. And you, you make a, an argument that, I mean, I guess it makes a sense from a, a law perspective, but still, I don't hear it much, is that basically innocence doesn't matter in terms of how we treat prisoners. Um, can you can you explain that? Yeah, it it um, there is nothing more destructive to this fragile thing we call civilization than the illusion that <clears throat> some of us can decide who are human and who are not. The destructiveness extends not simply to those who are tossed outside the circle, who are literally dehumanized. The lesson of history is that routinely, regularly, um, we identify a community, a group, and we assume the arrogance of being able to deny their humanity. Obviously, that is that's what we call genocide. That's what we call a Holocaust. Uh, that's what we call mass murder. Um, that is the, the essence of destruction for that group. But it is also destructive to those who claim the mantle of arbiter, who get to say, 
you do not deserve to live. It is destructive to those who are us and those who are them. And all of us have been both those things. In our DNA, we are all those things. When we claim, and it, it doesn't matter who it is that we're tossing outside the circle. When we claim the right to say, because you are a prisoner, because you have done a bad thing, because you are associated with bad things, because you may know people who have done bad things, you have lost your claim to humanity, and therefore we can construct a legal regime that allows us to do whatever we want to you. The legal regime, of course, is just iterative of the prior judgment that you have lost your humanity. When we, when we claim for ourselves that right, we have destroyed ourselves. We are destroying ourselves as well as destroying them. It is the most destructive step you can take as a human being. The claim that you can deny someone else's humanity. Why? Because you are superior, you have greater power, you have greater intelligence, you have greater foresight, you have greater wisdom, you have greater whatever. That is, that is the Rubicon that once you cross, you are on a path to your own destruction and to theirs. I have come to that conclusion through many long years of representing people. It's all I've ever done. I've never been a prosecutor. All I've ever done is, is represent people who someone stands up and points at him and says, he is an animal. He is not, he is not one of us. And what I've learned is that that is destructive of everyone who hears it. Now, I believe I read that you represented um, some men who never got a trial, were waterboarded hundreds of times. Um, can you talk about one of those cases? For many, many years, I represented a guy named Abu Zubaydah. Uh, Abu Zubaydah was the first person cast into the black sites, the CIA secret prisons. Um, I only stopped representing him just a few months ago. For I just couldn't keep doing it. Um, but I represented him for over a decade. He's he was the first sort of so-called high-value detainee. He's the only person who was subjected to all the quote enhanced interrogation techniques as and and then some many methods that were not uh, authorized. He's the only prisoner so, because he was the first. He was the poster child for the torture program. He's the only prisoner that we, as far as no, we know, the particulars of his torture were discussed and debated inside the White House. He is the person, it was for his torture that um, John Yu wrote the torture memo. That is, you want to do this to this person, that won't be a violation of law. You also want to do that to this person, yeah, that won't be a violation of law either. Uh, that's what the torture memo was. It was a justification of Abu Zubaydah's torture. Um, he was arrested uh, in Pakistan in late March of 2002, transferred to a black site. Everything I'm telling you is public record. I couldn't tell it if it, if it, if it, if it were something I learned only from talking to Abu Zubaydah, who I've met with a number of times, that would be classified. The only reason I'm allowed to say all this is because it's all become public. He was transferred to a black site first in um, Thailand then later in Poland, uh, held in a variety of black sites. Uh, the worst of the torture took place in Thailand, but also in Poland. Um, and uh, uh, the torture was horrific. He was uh, waterboarded 83 times uh, in the month of August 2002 alone. My God. The, sleep the sleep deprivation was, um, he was kept awake for seven consecutive days and nights. Um, the, the, the body simply cannot do that. If you if you try to keep a body awake that long, it, it, wherever there is a moment of pause, you will fall asleep. You will just collapse in sleep. And so in order to keep him awake, they would suspend him from hooks in the ceiling um, with his feet just dangling on the floor and douse him with cold water um, simply to uh, prevent him from from collapsing into sleep. He was crammed into boxes smaller than a coffin, another box that would fit more or less under the chair that you are sitting in right now. Um, and, and, you know, and, and this went on for weeks. Uh, we have meticulous, it's, it's, it's really, there's a, there's a particular um, 
fascination with chronicling exactly what was done. So we know down to the minute how many minutes he was he spent in these boxes, and um, you know exactly what his heart rate was because you had medical staff there who were monitoring it to make sure that uh, he was just um, uh, conscious enough to allow the torture to continue. It's really, it's, it's really sobering and, and frightening. Um, and then of course the codicil to all this is that they subsequently concluded, the reason they were torturing him was because he insisted that he didn't know the information they were seeking and they didn't believe him. So they would just ratchet up the torture. And they subsequently concluded, oh, you know what? He's right, he doesn't know this. Oh, he's not the person we thought he was. In fact, he's not even in Al Qaeda. In fact, he's ideologically opposed to Al Qaeda. Ah, oh, golly. Well, isn't it good that we did all these things? So now we know that he's not the person we thought he was. Ah, oh, good. It worked. Honest to gosh, that's what they said. It worked. We established that he really isn't the person that we thought he was. And, so and where, is, where, where is he now? Guantanamo. He's been at Guantanamo. He was brought there in September of 2006. Uh, he's never been charged. I'm sure he never will be charged. Um, he's just he's just there in, so this, in, in solitary confinement. Sometimes this stuff feels like history. You know, those those pictures of Abu Ghraib were a long time ago now. Um, but this is ongoing. This is just part of American policy now. Is is your view? Yes. Um, Guantanamo is now quite small. Uh, there's only 40 guys there. Um, it has been eclipsed. It's not, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't stir political passions anymore. Uh, it exists as a symbol mostly. Um, when President Trump was campaigning, he said, I'm going to make it bigger. I'm not going to close it. Well, of course, he hasn't made it any bigger. He, we, we, we don't use detentions in that way. It, he only said that in order to contrast himself from uh, both President Obama and, Obama and um, Democratic uh, candidates. He, the, there's, in fact, it's shrunk since he came into office. It, is, it exists only as something that must exist to demonstrate that we are tough. Um, it's extraordinarily expensive. It's cost well over a billion dollars. It's uh, uh, there are many, many more. Uh, I mean, it's 40 guys. It, Guantanamo was a base that was poised to be closed uh, before 9-11. Uh, it, it, it exists for no other reason uh, than to be an extraordinarily expensive stain on uh, our identity. Wow. Wow. So, you know, I believe I read that your former client, he wasn't involved with Al Qaeda, not part of that attack, but he was a jihadist, you know, someone right. who was involved with, you know, um, a, a movement that, um, you know, has, you know, um, attacked America a few times. So, you know, maybe not the most dangerous guy, maybe not a criminal in that crime. But um, just to, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to say is I love my city. I want to be safe. I want the strangers I ride the subway with next to me to be safe. I'm willing to go to great lengths for that outcome. And sometimes these long, no trial detentions, these torture and enhanced interrogation techniques have been sold to us as those great lengths. Um, by which we're made safe. And um, I'm wondering what you have to say to that. Do you have a different vision of what great lengths we could go to to be safe in our cities and our towns? Yeah, well, first of all, I share your desire to be safe. Um, but I wanna uh, unpack um, several of the things that you said, but starting from the premise that safety is a legitimate goal. I, I, obviously, I'm not suggesting that, we share that. First of all, you mentioned jihad. Jihad just translates to the struggle. Um, jihad refers, jihad has become one of those words that is contested and it, and it has been co-opted and it has been misused. 
all it means is an obligation to um, struggle on behalf of your brethren. Uh, Abu Zubaydah does not believe in the sort of jihad that produces attacks on innocent civilians. He thought that 9-11 was wrong, uh, has said this forever. Uh, as you say, he was not part of the planning of that. He was not in Al-Qaeda, uh, disapproves of what was done. Um, jihad is uh, about resisting. It, he believes in something called defensive jihad, which um, comes to the defense of Muslims who are uh, under attack, wherever they are under attack, are under attack Chechnya, Bosnia, etc. Um, and that you have an obligation, that one has an obligation that is supranational, it is independent of nation states. Your obligation is to your religious brethren. He believes that. He's never been bashful about that. And in that respect, he proudly de describes himself as a jihadi. Um, he, he got involved in the struggle uh, when he went to Afghanistan to um, resist against the communist-backed uh, Soviet-backed puppet government that was uh, installed in uh, Afghanistan um, after the Soviets left that was oppressive to Afghan Muslims. Um, so he believes in that. But within de defensive jihad, things that you're allowed to do and things that you're not allowed to do, and um, attacks against disengaged civilians is just not allowed under Islamic law. And so 9-11 was an apostasy, and 9-11 was uh, horrific. He thinks, for instance, that the, the behavior of ISIS, you know, beheading innocent people, is just absolutely abhorrent. It's, he, it's, it's, he is revolted by it. So, so that's the first answer. I would not lump all jihadi together. That's an extremely important thing. Well, that's the mistake that the United States made. They, they thought that everybody had the same views and everybody was Osama bin Laden. And that's just not right. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if there is someone who, uh, for whatever reason, whatever sort of religious fundamentalist reason, whether they are white or brown or black, um, whether they are a white nationalist, white supremacist, or an Islamic fundamentalist, and they commit a crime in the United States, and they drive a car onto a, a sidewalk, and they, and they kill a bunch of people, as happened in lower Manhattan, uh, or walk into a church uh, in Charleston and shoot up the congregation, uh, that's a crime, and we should, we should prosecute them. Uh, and, and we have been extremely successful in bringing those prosecutions. And when they're done, uh, we move on. Uh, the, we, don't, we don't have to abandon our principles about the rule of law uh, in order to be safe. We routinely, uh, in fact, it, literally nowadays in, in an age of Trump, you read at least once a week of a white nationalist plot that is uh, foiled by uh, uh, preventive intelligence by the FBI, right? So just recently, there was a guy who was going to go in and blow up or, or shoot up a synagogue, yet another. Um, and it was foiled by, at least if we can believe the FBI's what they're saying, and that's the subject of what should be tested in court. Um, but it was foiled by FBI in investigations. So you don't have to sort of lock that person up and throw them in a, in a, uh, a prison beyond the law somewhere. That's what we have the rule of law for. And so that's the answer. Right. And that's that's an interesting parallel because these are also acts of terror. But we might say very differently about, you know, someone who grew up in, you know, a rural American community being subjected to those kinds of conditions and, and tortures than we would of someone who grew up in Afghanistan. Right. Who follows but another religion. They're, they're, they're all people. They all deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. But if they've done something wrong, they have to be held accountable for it. And they, they're accountable. Accountability implies certain legal conditions, transparency, openness. That's what the Bill of Rights stands for. And if we abandon that at our peril, and uh, we are abandoning it, and it's, it's not a good thing in the United States. Hey, everyone. We thought we'd just take another quick break. Hope you don't mind too much, but Hans and I are here, and we just wanted to tell you about 
some awesome changes that have come to, to WeCroak this month. Do you want to fill everybody in, Hansa? Yeah, and of course, here we're talking about the WeCroak app. Uh, it reminds you you're going to die five times a day at randomized times, and now it can be downloaded for free with a database of 100 quotes just to get started, see if you like it. So uh, tell all your friends they can uh, see the magic for themselves, and if they really love it, they can always do Leap uh, into a, the largest database of 1,000 and growing quotes, plus weekly challenges, plus more things we're building. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting moment to be part of the We Croak family. Also, we are, of course, doing more podcast episodes for you. So if you uh, have guests that you think that uh, we should invite on the podcast, do let us know. We are actively kind of trying to grit people on here that you'll enjoy. So let us know. And thank you to all of you who have sent in ideas. Um, we really appreciate it and hope that you could look forward to seeing some of um, your folks get to hang out with Hansa and um, be uh, be a huge part of what we're trying to do here. All right. And with that, let's get back to today's conversation. So in your September article in the Boston Review, you said that the most dangerous thing about this legacy of, of torture is the permission it gives the present. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? And what are you seeing of sort of more drifting from our norms and our values? So I'm one of those people who th think that our norms and our values are never really moored to anything that they are always contested and uh, float free to accommodate the perceived demands of the day. And as long as they are unmoored this way, as long as they are untethered, as long as there is no anchor to something fixed, then the each new crisis will make new demands on it, on them, and demand that the norms drift over to where the crisis is and be reshaped to allow us to do what we really want to do uh, in that moment of crisis. And then once the crisis has passed, and this is why it's significant that nobody talks about torture anymore, we can look back and say, wow, that was a real abandonment of our values. It's a shame that we did that. It's a good thing we're done with that. When it, when it no longer costs anything, um, it doesn't amount to... Uh, amending our, it doesn't restrain power any by condemning torture when the, uh, the phenomenon is essentially passed. Uh, but meantime, what you've done is you've uh, embraced the idea of a drifting set of values. And so when they're called an, and a drifting set of values that allows for gradually more and more uh, dehumanization and more and more grotesque behavior. And so when the need arises in the next instance, uh, well, fortunately, we have this floating set of values that will accommodate that. And so once we tortured uh, alleged terrorists in Guantanamo, and now we uh, torture children uh, at the border. And if anybody wants to take the position, well, that's not really torture. We're just separating from their parents. It's not the same thing. It's not, you see, Joe, you're misusing the word torture there. Well, that's that sort of word game that I was talking about. And that's the kind of exercise that people can get into. The human mind has a great capacity to draw distinctions. And they'll say, no, 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 this is okay. This is different. This is, if they didn't want this to happen, they shouldn't have come into the country. Uh, no, no. My fixed star is everybody treat, should be treated with dignity and respect, and you don't move from that value. But this is not how we behave. And once you torture, it becomes very easy to do it again. You'll always find someone who, uh, quote, deserves it. We'll never have any want of that. Um, and uh, once you've allowed it to happen, once, you just, once you've decided it's okay, uh, well, we'll do, trust me, in time, we'll find the need will be summoned again. Wow. You, know, you said something in that, that piece that, that really uh, struck me as very sobering, chilling. You said, we like to believe that values have a power of their own and can compel a result, even when there is no political will behind it. 
the lesson of history is not kind to that belief. I mean, looking at what's happened, I think you've got a lot of evidence for that um, position. And I'm wondering if you, like, obviously I think you're, you're a man of values that you clearly cherish based on what you've chosen to do with your life. Um, can you give us a sense of what you believe values can do and also what their limitations are? What they can do. Um, values have no meaning unless there are people who hold them in place and refuse to allow them to drift. Values by themselves do not have a, they are just words. Unless they are given content by those who believe in them, the content that they are given acts as the anchor that prevents them from drifting. So their substance depends on their ability of people to pour their souls into them and say, this matters to me and it will not be moved. Absent that, it's just a word. So I have learned over the years to mistrust power and trust people. People who are passionate and refuse to allow power to drag the value and press it into service for whatever the perceived emergency is, that's what gives the value content. Without that, value will be, values, the things we prize, all this language that you hear all the time, oh, that's not what America is, that's not what America's about. Well, that, just get over that. It's only about this or that because People will put their foot down and simply not allow it. And then, you know, in our day and age, when there's such a, a condescension towards collective action, people are like, oh God, there's another guy who wants to go march in the streets. Okay, fine, just don't, don't interfere with my commute. Uh, well, no, you know, just, just yesterday for a class I'm teaching, I was reading Dr. King's um, letter from Birmingham jail and I cannot, some in the exact language, but he said that power never relinquishes, relinquishes itself voluntarily. It only relinquishes its power, uh, its hold on resources, on the claim of what is right and what is just, if people of goodwill demand it. Uh, that's how you give content to a value whether that value is the end of Jim Crow or the end of torture or the end of children stripped from their mother's arms at age 10 months uh, and held in cages. It, nothing happens unless people demand it. Whew. Yeah, that's, it's really, um, your view is you gotta stand up, and make it happen, put your life on the line for it or it's just empty words. Okay. And it, it's, it's, it's empty words and it's an empty life. It's, 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 it's words uttered by someone else and your life is the quotidian, where am I going to get a good pound of coffee today? Now, I understand that, look, we live in a neoliberal age that has intensified inequality. Inequality is at the worst that it's ever been since we started keeping track. And all indications are that it's going to get worse. There are millions of people in the country that are one mishap away from disaster. They are, they are $500 away from ruin. Just a, you know, oh, my car needs a new transmission. Uh, so they are perilously close to the edge. I get that, you know, I, I don't know what resources that those folks who can command because they are to do other things because just sustaining life at without becoming homeless is such a struggle. I'm 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 with you on that. I understand that. But those who have time and resources, those who can make time in their day without doing harm to themselves or to the ones that they love, you have an obligation. You have a you have you must. Because you can, you must. Or else the country will be what it is becoming. 
if you're okay with that, then fine. You know, go and sin no more. I'm, you know, you go do your thing, I'll do my thing. But you must. So one of the things that we talk a lot about at We Croak is just how, you know, we have this tremendous aversion to thinking about how one day we will die. And, um, you know, we're, just for our listeners, we're having this conversation. We started at 9 a.m. on a fall morning. And I noticed waking up early this morning that I had next level aversion to, you know, getting up first thing and thinking about and talking about torture. It was probably the last topic I wanted to consider. Uh, it makes me extremely uncomfortable to think of, you know, my tax dollars going there, my my country, you know, doing these things. Like, there's just no part of it that um, doesn't make me want to feel squeamish. And, you know, uh, you're, you are a person that has gotten up more than just one morning like me and faced these issues. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, how do you do it? Do, do you feel that ever? Hmm. Oh, uh, every day, every single day. It, it never goes away? Never goes away. My wife and I, my wife also does work like this. She is an international human rights lawyer and spends her time, a great deal of her time, in places where conditions are vastly worse. She just got back from Africa where uh, she was in Malawi and Tanzania, where the levels of poverty are just you, just unfathomable. Malawi is one of the poorest countries in the world. She's leaving in a in a in a few weeks to the Golan, which is a essentially an, uh, an occupied space. So we are both around it all the time. Uh, I used to be glib. Uh, when people would ask me questions like this, and I'd say things like, oh, you know, living on reds, vitamin C, and cocaine, it's not so bad. Um, uh, I'm not glib anymore, um, particularly since I see in my students, young, passionate, energetic students who want to go off and do this work, and I, and I know what will happen to them. It's, um, it's very hard. It's very hard. And I don't want to sound like a martyr. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not at all. Uh, this is my choice. I can't do otherwise. I don't. I don't ask for any special, you know, sympathy or kindness or anything. I, this is what I do. I couldn't. Literally, I could not do anything else. I could make a whole lot more money at a law firm. I would hate it, and I'd quit in 45 minutes. But it is hard, and you need to build in ways to keep you uh, sane. Uh, I, my wife and I, rely very heavily on each other. We rely on the natural beauty of upstate New York, which matters to us a lot. You know, you, you, you can't fight these battles, and that's what they are, they're fights. They're just fights. I'm starting, I'm gearing up for another one that I can't talk about now, but it'll become known soon enough. Another, more litigation and more public campaigns around other things that shouldn't be happening but are. And um, the only way you can sort of gird yourself is to create spaces that are uh, healthy for you, whether that's in, I don't know, everybody has their own ways to, to be healthy. When I was younger, you know, I tried to get healthy, you know, in the bottle of, bottom of a bottle of Jack Daniels, and that never worked out that well for me. Um, so you got to find healthier ways to do it. But I don't want to make it sound like it is easy. It isn't easy. I don't like to talk. You know, you say you did, got up and you didn't want to go talk about torture. You know, I never go to movies about, you know, torture, uh, the death penalty. Um, people say, well, oh, did you watch, you know, I don't know, this this or that, the Taxi to the Dark Side. Apparently, I, you know, there's a lot of documentaries that I'm in. Um, you know, people interview me about this or uh, talk about my work. I've never watched a one of them. I can't do it either. I can't, I'm, I guarantee you, I will not listen to this podcast. I just, I can't do it. You, you save it for um, when it really matters, when you're actually fighting and you have a support it, network, people, yeah, upstate yeah. New York. Yeah, if it does some good for other people when they watch or listen or whatever it is they do and it motivates them to get involved in the issues that, are, that they're passionate about, it doesn't have to be torture, it doesn't have to be the rights of prisoners, uh, whatever it is you're passionate about, pursue your passion to, toward justice. But I... Do not take my free time and go watch movies about the death penalty. So what would you what would you like people to do? Like what what could really make a difference for someone who isn't the lawyer per se, like who want but 
has shares your values that torture is aligned too far and we need to come back to to moral clarity like what what do you recommend I, I don't think that it's a matter of one issue or another because the issue will change uh, that, that's why you know yesterday it was torture at Guantanamo today it's torture at the border what I would love to see is to invigorate the unwaverable unyielding attachment to human dignity and to insist upon it in all things everyone and everything has to yield to dignity and, and you know don't come back to me and say well i don't know what does dignity mean it's so hard to define i don't know you know just ask yourself things like well if i would recoil if it were done to an animal then that's an affront to dignity um and, and if if people can attach themselves to that in all their dealings and insist upon it in all the organizations of which they are a part, all the campaigns of which they are a part, all the interactions uh, of which they are a part, and, and, and to be public about it, to be very intentional about it, uh, that will go a long, long way. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joseph Margulis. And you write for a number of publications. I believe you also have a couple of books out. Do you want, do you want to mention those really quickly? Sure. My first book was with Simon & Schuster. It's called Guantanamo and the Abuse of Presidential Power. And that came out in 2006 or seven. Uh, and my second book was um, What Changed When Everything Changed, 9-11 and the Making of National Identity, which is really about it's really about the core of these questions here. What happens to us uh, and what happened to us uh, when this thing came along called 9-11? And that was published by Yale University Press in 2013. So if you're interested in these issues, um, and thank you for you know really looking at uh, some of the things that most of us really don't want to look at on most days. Uh, but I think they're really important issues. So if Not at all. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I hope I haven't been a downer for the day of anybody who listens to this. No, not at all. I think you, you had some really moving answers about, uh, about values and about your work. So really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And, no worries. Uh, yeah, thank you. Not at all. Take care. Thank you again, Joseph Margulis, for joining us in this episode. And thank you, all of you, who have taken the time to leave a review for the We Croak podcast, or even gone above and beyond and become a Patreon subscriber. But most importantly, thank you all so much for listening. Now, as uh, we all know, the subject matter that we address on this episode and all of our episodes to one degree or another can be really challenging. And the most important thing is that we listen to each other and, and try to learn. And so thank you for for listening and being a part of this awesome community. Thank you for your support and we'll see you next time.